Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And today, in the series of interviews that I've been doing with people who are moving and shaking in the arts in Leeds or in West Yorkshire, I'm going to be talking to Lydia Catterall, who will describe herself and what she does in a few minutes. Hello, Lydia. Hello. Am I moving and shaking in Leeds? That's a lovely intro. (laughs) Well, I hope you are. (laughs) At this very moment. Um, now, we heard some music then by Thurston Harris. Tell, t- that was a choice of yours. Tell us why you chose that piece of music. I chose that piece of music because I first heard it when I was very small, watching the film Matilda. And there's a scene, amazing scene in that film. It's probably the best one where she's she's got a grip of her powers and she's just making use of them. She's casually making breakfast with her magical powers. And it's the soundtrack of that whole scene. 
And I just, yeah, I've never forgotten that or how I felt watching it. And whenever I hear that song, you can't help but feel a little bit magic. Uh, so about finding, there may be a theme already emerging about finding one's magic or one's power, but uh, we shall return to that. So Lydia, um, first of all, um, you, you've when, when when I look at your how you describe yourself on Twitter, for instance, or in other places, there there's quite a list of uh, of there's artist, writer, collaborator researcher if you're at a if at a kind of social gathering with people who aren't particularly connected to the arts who may be in a kind of different world from you in a way and somebody says so what do you do for a living what do you say do you know what i do say artist because i think it's really important even in worlds where people feel quite it probably especially in worlds where people feel quite disconnected from the arts i think it's really important for people to have different lived experiences of what an artist looks like and it's taken me a really long time to get comfortable with the title of artist but now that I'm here I really want to use it and I really want people to see what I do as art making it looks lots of different ways which is why I use all of those different words it, it might be that I write an article it might be that I manage a project for a while it might be a community project it might be a a workshop or a bit of training or um, a spoken thing like this but whatever I'm doing I approach it from the same place and that's a, that that place is from the place of artists so I'm really intentional about using that word actually. Great and I totally applaud that and uh, resonate with it but another um, sort of theme that emerges for me from from working with you in the past and seeing what you do is is connection you seem to be you seem to be or have an interest in connecting lots of different people and groups is that is that fair to say i think connection is everything i really do i don't think it gets if you if you go back and back and back and back to the very very basics and and take away all the bells whistles and frills the thing that you can't reduce down to less is connection relationship is everything who you know how you work together uh, what you pass between you it's it's the energy that fuels the sector it's the currency we pass between us it's the actions that we do it's the fun we have together it's keeping each other healthy and happy and well I just think connection is everything so yeah you're dead right collaboration and connecting conversations and being aware of people's skills and gifts and trying to bring as many of those into the room as I can is a big part of what I do. One of the things you do that, that obviously does connect people very strongly, I think, um, to you but to each other, I think, is is the, I, I'm, I'm not sure what you call it, but you it, every, every week you produce a newsletter sounds like something, that, you know, the Paris newsletter, I don't mean that, it's a kind of missive really from you to people, uh, other artists and not and non-artists as well. And tell us about that and how you originated that and what the purpose of it is for you. Mm. Well, it's actually every other week, but it's really nice that you feel it's as often as every <laughs> week because obviously they sit with you. Um, I do. I have a, a Patreon page as well, and I put the week that there isn't a newsletter, I put something on my Patreon page. So there are some people that hear from me every week, but. Um, it took me a really long time to 
feel brave enough to send something that felt like a newsletter actually because I knew from the start that I wanted to share thoughts that weren't quite finished I wanted it to be a sort of open studio um, take a look at my desk while I'm working some things out and I wanted to set a bit of an example of sharing ideas before they're finished um, failing out loud thinking out loud knowing that I would look back in a year's time and probably be a bit embarrassed about some of the things that I was thinking about or some of the connections that I was making but also knowing that it would act as a little bit of a oh that's how I got to that that's how I got to that idea and a, a few people witnessed me getting there or um, a few people will have a better sense of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and how I'm doing it by me talking about what's at the roots of it rather than hey I've got a workshop in two weeks time do you want to sign up or hey I'm doing this thing do you want to buy it hmm. um so it was always about building community around my work but it was also always about hearing back from other people and sort of putting some provocations out there that people could respond to and talk to me about and again kind of expanding that idea of what the artist is and what they can what kinds of thoughts they're having and what they can be talking about or thinking about and the fact that bubble baths and forests and aeroplanes and rocket scientists and brain science and what you have for dinner all does kind of tie in because it all exists in the same universe so there are there are links between these things and do you do you, do you feel that you are com starting conversations uh, with this newsletter, with with this thing that you produce every two weeks, so do you feel that there? Do 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 you hear from people, and do people communicate with each other as a, as a result of them? Do you think? Yeah, do you know what I do? I get replies every week, and it means that Sundays are some Sunday mornings are some of my favourite time. I decided to send it on a Sunday morning because growing up, my dad would walk to the local paper shop buy the papers, walk back with them, we'd make breakfast and my mum would get the puzzles, my dad would have like the current affairs and I'd have all the supplement magazines with all the fashion and interior design and arty bits in them and we would sit and, and eat our crumpets in silence and then occasionally one of us would just read from whatever bit of the paper we had, mum might read a clue out, I would say something like what do you reckon to this dress and my dad would say something incredible that was happening on the other side of the world and I just really wanted to be part of that Sunday morning slot for someone somewhere and I think one of the most amazing bits of feedback I've had is that there are families who sit around the breakfast table and read it aloud together every other Sunday and to be part of some kind of Sunday morning ritual or or some kind of potential family memory for someone in the future is just the biggest compliment um, but yeah, people have been in touch with each other or I've put people in touch with each other and said, you both emailed me with similar thoughts here. I think you'd really get along. And it's also led to it's led to people approaching me with things like we're doing a thing. We don't quite know what your involvement should be, but we kind of have the sense that you should be part of it somehow because of the things you talk about or the kind of voice you have. And um, when they speak to me in person they often comment on the fact that I speak like I write and I write like I speak and that's that's a, another huge compliment I think because it it kind of it feels that way when I write I try and 
I almost speak out loud as I'm typing. And if it's not something I would say, I won't write it. Otherwise, it doesn't read in the way I want it to. So, yeah, I think it is connecting people and it's definitely connecting me to people. And that's that, that's totally worth the fear that I felt before sending the first one. Has that been more important for you during this last eight or nine months or so? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought loads about it. I think the content of what I've written has changed. Um, I was quite intentional, particularly at the beginning, about not specifically commenting on the pandemic itself or bringing up the word coronavirus here, there and everywhere because we were hearing it enough already. Um, I've really tried to use it as a place to draw out some of the things that we can know or think about regardless of what else is going on or to think about the things that are changing in this time that we don't necessarily want to let go of because they're good changes um but certainly hearing from other people at a time when I'm usually on a lot of trains I'm usually visiting friends and projects and doing exciting things up and down the country. I might even have gotten a couple of planes in an average year, and that obviously hasn't happened this year. So there was a bit of fear at the beginning of, well, if I'm not roaming around and kind of gathering experiences, because a lot of the time I refer to things that I've been up to, then what am I going to write about? So it's made me write from a different place, and I think that's made people comment from a different place place too and I've really valued that it's certainly been a more intimate kind of quiet slow burning conversation rather than sparky energetic which is a is a good lesson I think you need a bit of both well I, th I would thoroughly recommend to anybody listening who's interested in hearing Lydia talk about it her um her whatever you call it her news her new, your newsletter <laughs> um I've <laughs> I've 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 found it a really uh, lovely thing to receive on a Sunday morning. I mean, it's, as you say, I, I I it is full of of thoughts which might not which might not be conclusions because what can we conclude? We're in process all the time, especially as artists. Mm -hmm. And also, it's full of really interesting uh, tips about podcasts you've that you've listened to, Lydia, or or books you've yeah. read and. Um, it's it's a really it's a really lovely thing. So tell us to, how 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 would people if people wanted to get to access it how would they do that? Oh, thank you, Peter. It means a lot coming from you. Um, you can sign up via my website, which is hellolydia.co.uk, or um, I've got a direct link to a sign up link via my Instagram page. If people are on Instagram, they just search for my full name, and I'm on there. Well, I do recommend it. Time for your second piece of music. Uh, Gillian Welch, Everything is Free. I just, it's probably, it's one of my all-time favourite songs. I found it about two years ago and was singing it around the house and it wasn't until someone else said to me, that's almost like a manifesto, isn't it? That's almost like how you work. Of course you love that song because she's talking about just giving everything she's got away. But I think the the message in the lyrics is along the lines of whatever you give away you're not without it doesn't it doesn't diminish or deplete you to give away what you've got and you can afford to be generous we can all afford to be generous 
and I, I just really love that sentiment as well as her voice is just incredible. That's what I said 
So that was Everything is Free by Gillian Welch, chosen by Lydia Catterall, who is our guest this week on Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. Artist, writer, collaborator, researcher, all kinds of things. Um, Lydia, how did this all start for you in terms of where, you know, if you can, uh, sort of where we are now? Did you see a clear path to here? How did it start? That's really interesting because I was having this conversation yesterday with a friend for the first time in a long time and we were both commenting on the fact that if you were to look back at 15 or 14 year old us um, and say this is where you'll end up and you'll call it a job, just no one has it sorted do they? No one has a point where you go this is it, I'm a grown up, I'm doing the job, I'm doing the thing, I've worked it out, I've found it I'm I'm doing it for real now I still feel like I make up my job every day and I think lots and lots of people do and those who don't say that are probably making it up <laughs> but so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say there was ever a clear path um what I'm surprised thinking back is how there were lots of key moments where I really stuck to my guns about the thing that most excited me or most fueled me even when it was trickier to do that um, I had, um, both my parents were social workers and had 40 years social work experience between them. So a lot of the conversations at home were about families and real people and how people live and, you know, the hard parts of being alive as well as the really amazing parts and the, the spread of human experience was just really part of the fabric of being in my household. And then at school, just really, really into the arts, art, drama, music, played instruments, did all the clubs, uh, was in the school play, not always in the kind of, I wasn't an upfront role kind of person, but I wanted to be in the mix, you know. And for me, they were just never mutually exclusive. I didn't feel like you had to make bad art for it to involve lots of people. And I didn't feel like you had to make um, strange community projects just to kind of elbow in some art somewhere and I just really looked out for the the examples where both things were being done well and I suppose by not trying to be a social worker because my parents told me I should definitely not be one of those um, <laughs> by not trying to be particularly great at any one job I managed to find this space where I kind of looked at the best and worst of lots of different jobs and lots of different ways of working and lots of different examples and without assigning them to a box or to a sector or to a particular profession just went well what what happens if you take a bit of that the best of that some of that and then 
that seems to go really well when they do it over there. So what if you then pull that over into this world and do it over there instead and then maybe make a big pot of soup and ask people to gather around that and then see how that changes things. Um, and just over time, kind of playing, I think play has just been really central and and going with a gut instinct and um, taking risks. Mm. And here we are, I'm in a position where sometimes my work looks very much like, like I said earlier, like a, a project, like a community-based project with goals and targets and aims and a budget and I, I can do that but it comes from a, a headspace of okay how can we cross that over with that and where can we eat together and where can we make something together and how can we ask a question about the future in there and how can we evaluate differently and what does success really look like or feel like or sound like or what color is success and just being able to bring in some of that thinking in lots of different places yeah that's a messy answer, but there wasn't a, when I grow up, I'm going to be, apart from the brief time when I was a kid, when I would, I wanted to be a ballet dancer and a fireman at the same time. <laughs> well, there's still time. Uh, but, um, I mean, I think there does seem to be much more acceptance these days. than if you'll agree, I think you are agreeing by just what you, what you said. Um, it seems to be more acceptance of people doing a mixture of stuff really I suppose as an artist years ago you had to be one thing a ballet dancer for instance yeah. or a fine yeah. artist but these days it's much more mixed up there's much far more acceptance in indeed encouragement a sort of almost a status attached not status but you know people are respected for doing a different a bunch of stuff within within being an artist it's I mean it still must be confusing though I sometimes think for people setting out in the arts and what 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 sort of advice would you give somebody sort of you know I don't know just leaving university maybe with a sort of a, like a degree who wants to to go into the I mean you know how, where do they start what do they do how do they how do they frame it in their own heads for you yeah sure I remember um thinking a lot when I was much much younger that there's just there's this generational thing isn't there of often our grandparents or some of our parents will have spent their whole lives dedicated to a single sector or maybe even a single role, a single job in a, in a particular business and they're there for 30, 40, 50 years. And then there was a, a, a kind of time in the 80s and 90s where apparently the average person would have five careers in a lifetime. We're now in a situation where people my age and younger are expected to have 10 careers within a lifetime, whatever you deem a career to be. And the number of people choosing self-employment over contracted employment is growing all the time. And apparently the pandemic has had a really big impact on that as well. 61% of self-employed women are considering complete career changes post-pandemic because there is that kind of lightness and ability to just shift your own direction if you're, if you're self-employed equally that comes with all of the weight and difficulty of shifting direction every time you want to shift direction and I think my my advice to um, anyone really arts based or not would be that connection and that relationship is everything because if if we go back to kind of my favourite kind of metaphors around trees and woodlands and forests and things, it's in the roots, it's in the mycelium, it's in the it's in the stuff that's below the surface of the of the soil that all the goodness lives and all the kind of 
the unchangeables, the things that you know you're always going to be fueled by, you're always going to be interested in, you're always going to need an element of that to stay engaged in what you're doing and be excited by what you're doing. And then the bit that pops above the surface might grow and change and have different branches or different colours depending on the season or um, bend and sway in the wind or maybe even parts of it will break off because the the climate at the time doesn't allow for that bit to grow but the bit below the soil is the bit that you need to keep nourished and the bit you need to be sure of and that comes from who you know how you work together how you nourish yourself what books are you reading where are you getting your news from what music are you listening to what colors do you want around you in your environment all of those things that take care of you and keep you um inspired and thinking and asking questions don't ever stop asking questions no matter who tells you to reach a conclusion push back you need to keep asking questions the minute you stop asking questions you've you've gone too far thanks lydia that's 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 good advice and not just for for people as you say entering the arts but or thinking about doing that but in any any stage of their lives really contemplating uh, a future but um i want to ask you about something you're doing at the moment um in east leeds up with us in seacroft um that sounds like a really interesting uh, project just tell us a little about what you're doing and, and the function of it yeah i'm absolutely chuffed to be working in, in east leeds um, and it was the ls14 trust that approached me initially uh, maybe like early summer june time july time and said obviously in response to covid there was a huge partnership response amongst a bunch of different organizations based across east leeds 12 or 13 of them who all came together and uh, brought the best of their skill sets the best of their resources and just pooled it all and um, responded to local needs within the community to make sure that people had basic things like their medicine and food, but also to make sure that they stayed in relationship with each other, in touch with each other, to battle things like loneliness and fear, um, to bring some play and some fun with various packages and deliveries as well. But there's just been this huge response effort that's involved a lot of local volunteers and a lot of local people as well. And uh, LS14 basically said to me, we're in it, we're doing it, something's happening here but we can't really step back and look at it because we're doing it so could you listen watch and um, reflect back to us what's going on a little bit maybe even think about some creative responses that tell stories of what's going on here because there's a reason why it's happening in the way that it's happening and i think with an event as big as a global pandemic it's really really natural i suppose to zoom in and see it as the start of a timeline or the end of a timeline, like the world stopped and everything ended with COVID. Or do you remember the year of COVID and everything that happened afterwards? Whereas actually, East Leeds has existed for a really long time. And the relationships that exist there, and the work that goes on there, has a really long and intricate history from really thoughtful and practical people. So there was something about putting what's gone on in the context of a timeline and saying, this is what went before, this is what happened during and this is what we possibly want to carry forward afterwards. And so I've had the total pleasure of endless Zoom calls and I'm not even sad that it's been so many Zoom calls, but endless Zoom calls with 
people from these incredible organizations and mem members of the community telling me their side of the story and talking to me about how it's felt for them and what some of the most magical moments have been and what the most difficult bits have been and I'm just I can't I can't quite convey to you Peter just how honest and generous people have been with their stories it's really easy to just turn up and say oh yeah it's been really hard or yeah no it's you know we've we've done our best obviously there's been difficult bits but it's been great but just the people have put their heart on a plate and I've just so I've been really blown away I've come off every call and grinned a bit cried a bit and grinned some more and it's just been a joy to do it's really it's it's definitely been a, a lifeline for me during this time as well I live by myself I work from home it's not that I haven't seen anyone but in terms of feeling connected to a, a wider community it's definitely had a huge impact on how I've managed the pandemic too and it's just been a real privilege to hear people's stories so generously and this work you're doing will it will it have a public outlet of any kind yeah, so it's going to have a few um, a few bits and bobs. I think one of the things to say is that LS14 have asked me to join their team longer term, which I'm really, really happy about. So I'm going to be working in Seacroft in the longer term over the next couple of years. And some of the outcomes of this listening will be slower and will come out over time. But I'm, I'm playing with some quite creative ideas that might even be kind of publicly visible and might pop up on street corners and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm also doing a lot of writing at the moment and kind of consolidating what I've heard and advocating, passing some of that information on to people who need to hear the kinds of stories and skills and gifts that really exist in Seacroft and the kinds of things that need support to flourish and be louder and to maybe ask for some more of the power to sit with people in Seacroft. Um, I'm also working with colleagues at the LS14 Trust to develop a, a young leadership programme and we're going to be working with young people to, who, who can possibly take up a bit more space and have more of an influence over how Seacroft turns out to be in the future so there's lots and lots of little ways that this is going to feed in but they're all about people in Seacroft and there will certainly be lots and lots of opportunity to get involved. Wow congratulations on on, on being uh, being a part of, of the LS4 team. Team! Thank you that's, we're neighbours now we, I'll see you there. I'll see you there <laughs> well that's really good news that's that so we can uh, yeah definitely a lot of work to do and we're just down the road, as you say. That's fantastic, Lydia. So, um, finally, before uh, we have to leave you with, an, with another piece of music, um, yes, you, one of the things on your, uh, on your description, self-description, is training for unknown futures. And <laughs> I don't know whether, that's, whether you deliver the training or you, whether you are training. You'd probably say you're in training both uh, so um just explain that what, what that means for you unknown futures you know me so well you know me so well of course i'm saying both <laughs> <laughs> and i think and i think really really central to my work is in my learning i'm i'm happy to host other people's learning but really we're learning together i never take that position of i am the expert i will teach you how to do this thing that i am amazing at it's always from a position of 
we're in this together and there's always more I can learn there's always more you can learn and if I'm just a person that has the time to arrange a space where we can do a bit of that learning together that's fine but yeah it's never from a place of expertise some of those ideas come from my favorite ever artist Jeanne van Heyswick who is a Dutch female artist who works in public space she would say that the city is her studio and she's she's just fascinating and um, an endless source of inspiration for me I found her when I was doing my degree and I actually sent her an email at the time because I didn't know how big and, and special she was and she got back in touch and we've known each other for nearly a decade now we we still email from time to time mm. but her whole um, stance, particularly at the moment in the last five years or so, has been: we don't know what the future is going to be. We don't. We we don't know what it is that we will need to do, but we can make some guesses about who we will need to be in order to not only survive it but thrive in it. And there are skills and ideas and practices that we can invest in and think about and spend time with that will serve as well, whatever the future brings. And I really, really sign up to that. I really think too often the question we ask is, what should we do? What should we do about climate change? What should we do about community cohesion? What should we do about budget cuts? And I, I always want to ask that question of who do we need to be, actually? Because I think if, if we spent a bit more time focusing on that side of things, we're more likely to get the what should we do right or right for more people. So... Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think in the work that I do, I'm trying to just hold a bit of space for us to think about what what things do we need to prioritise here that we'll always need prioritising. Whatever the, whatever the current fire burning right in front of us is, whatever the emergency response we're having to make is for, what are the things that are always going to be worthwhile valuing, actually? Fantastic. No, I totally go with that value. And I love the question, who do we need to be? And finally, again, tell us if people want to know more about you and what you do, where do they go? I think the two key places are my website and Instagram. They're the places that I post most often. So my website is hellolydia.co.uk. And for Instagram, it's just my full name, Lydia Catterall. Thanks so much, Lydia. Thanks for talking to us. It's been fascinating. Really looking forward to working with you up at uh, LS14 through the next few years. going to be a really interesting few years, not just in East Leeds, but uh, everywhere else too. Um, so finally, what's the, that, the, the final piece of music you've, you've chosen, Scroobius? I'm so, so grateful that you've let me do three. You were, you made me so sad when you said only two. Honestly, every I'm, I'm a person who has a playlist for everything and so many eras and moments are defined by tracks. So when you said, oh, if you could just casually pick two, I was devastated. So thank you. Thank you for squeezing in a third. Um, I've chosen Thou Shalt Always Kill by Scroobius Pip. A friend sent me this album when I was living in Romania for six months, when I was 19. So it was my first time away from home. It was the first time I was living by myself. I was working on community projects in the middle of nowhere. And he sent me this spoken word, like heavy beats album. And I just remember being in my tiny studio flat, kind of dancing around to this thing. And 
the reason I've chosen this track is because I'm a big fan of manifestos and I'm a big fan of kind of borrowing structures and playing with them and using them for something other than what they were originally intended for. And I kind of hear this piece of music or this track as just a, a really fun play at a manifesto, but there's also a lot of truth in it. And I think that often happens that when you're playing with something, you tend to get to the roots of what you really mean or what you really think. So I always laugh and nod when I listen to it. Thou shalt not steal if there is a direct victim. Thou shalt not worship pop idols or follow lost prophets. Thou shalt not take the names of Johnny Cash, Joe Strummer, Johnny Hartman, Desmond Decker, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix or Sid Barrett in vain. Love the pronouns, impersonal 
and personal. Love the words from ELFM. You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. Thanks so much to Lydia Catterall for that interview. In a moment, we have Jimmy Andrakes presenting his investigation into translation. The merits, demerits, challenges, failures of translators and translation. Jimmy Andrakes in just a moment. After that, we've got a short story by Jacqueline Gale, a writer based in Huddersfield, who's been uh, been in touch with us for a very long time and been a long-time supporter of Chapel FM Arts Centre. First of all, take it away, Jimmy. Translation on Trial, Part 2. Cultural Theft. Between 1801 and 1812, Agents of Thomas Bruce, the seventh Earl Elgin, removed about half the sculptures from the Athens Parthenon, along with some sculptures from other sites. He claimed to have a permit from the Ottoman Empire, who ruled Athens at the time, though their extensive archives still contain no such document. For 200 years, the Greeks have tried to get the UK government to return them without success. The British Museum has a special building to house them. One argument, advanced for not returning the plundered marbles, is that they have become, to quote one source, part of our national heritage. What's all this got to do with translating songs, I hear you ask? Well, may I present Exhibit 2. And now end is near and so I face the final curtain my friend I'll say it clear this song is so much part of the pop music canon that there's hardly a pub singer busker or drunken uncle who hasn't lurched into an assault on this version of a 1967 hit for French legend Claude Francois Even the king himself released a version which didn't so much murder it as torture, dismember, incinerate and send the pieces back to the composers in bloodstained parcels. However, once again, the composer of the English lyrics, in this case former teen idol Paul Anker, dispensed with the need for language skills or a dictionary. He'd come across the song on holiday in the south of France in 1969 and knew a hit tune when he heard it. He flew himself straight up to Paris, where he purchased the rights to do an English version for one dollar. The price might surprise some, but this is in fact a familiar practice when the original composers cannily speak the language of opportunity and sell the song for a nominal fee in return for a piece of the action later on. No mean songwriter himself, the composer of Diana and Lonely Boy felt the tune might suit Sinatra, only problem was, when he dined a few weeks later in Florida with Sinatra, uh, with what he called a couple of mob guys, old Blue Eyes was all for packing it in. I'm quitting the business. I'm sick of it. I want the hell out. 
Undeterred, Anka then used the idea that this might be Frank's swan song as the central theme of the piece. What followed, largely somebody bragging for three minutes with the confidence that only comes with being connected, sold millions and made everyone rich. However, whereas Terry Jack's season in The Sun, which we dealt with last time, at least took the gist of the original, Paul Anker just lifted the tune and wrote something he thought would be a fitting farewell for a retiring superstar. Which is a shame, because the original, Comme d'habitude, is a subtle, poignant tale of a bloke whose relationship with his wife is dying amid the monotony of life. The end of every line in the verse is Comme d'habitude meaning, as usual. In the chorus, which is more of an elevated verse with a payoff, the phrase switches to the beginning of the line, instead before the climactic finale, which is, of course, the same phrase again. Comme d'habitude. Such repetition runs the risk of becoming annoying, but this song, I think, gets away with it, because things becoming meaningless through repetition is, after all, what the song is all about. It says a lot about the strength of the French chansonnier tradition that such a meta-concept was merely a mainstream chart-topping hit in France in 1967. Clever chaps. However, if you watch the video of Clo-Clo singing the song on YouTube, brace yourself for possibly the worst men's cardigan since civilization began. Apparently, François wasn't the first to have a crack. The tune's composer, Jacques Revaux, had first offered it to another singer, Hervé Villard, but wasn't happy with it. Being the big shot and also being in the throes of a dying marriage to former Eurovision songstress France Gall, François agreed on condition that the lyrics were changed to reflect his own troubles. What's interesting is that he is credited as sole lyricist and despite extensive research, nothing seems to exist of Hervé Villard's original version, though he did record it later with François' lyrics. Even more interestingly, Paul Anker wasn't the only person in the business who'd heard the song and smelled cash. Ken Pitt, then manager of a struggling songwriter by the name of David Bowie, urged his protégé to come up with some lyrics of his own. Even A Fool Learns to Love was rejected because, well, frankly, it's terrible. But also possibly because, great artist though he may have been, lyrics were never his strong point. For instance, and I know it's nitpicking, but the key line in French or English has five syllables and Bowie's has seven. Maybe it works if you do it in mime, I don't know. Anyway, the Dave himself confessed to being really cheesed off and set about writing something similar. All he could come up with, sadly, was Life on Mars. If you listen to that song, our Dave got session pianist Rick Waitman to pick out the first line of My Way in the piano accompaniment as a musical joke. It's a good one too. Even if no one ever heard it, would have noticed if you hadn't said. They say that crime doesn't pay, but the Elgin marbles are still in the British Museum, Frank and David live to a ripe old age, and Paul Anker is still alive. Poor old Clo-Clo, however, wasn't so lucky. In 1978, at the age of just 39, he nipped back to his Paris flat so he could put in an appearance on a chat show, hosted by a former sports commentator. Settled into a bath, he noticed the light fitting was wonky, stood up to adjust it and was electrocuted. All of this proves that A. Translation is so difficult, canny operators will usually avoid it. B. 
If you commit cultural theft, you'll probably get clean away with it. And see, even music legends struggle to get a decent plumber or electrician. Of course, another reason Paul Anker didn't bother getting his dictionary out is that the title itself presents a translation problem. In English, the equivalent everyday phrase is, as usual. But the French actually contains, at its root, the word habit. So what, you might say? Well, on an unconscious level, any French-speaking listener will absorb the idea of repeated occurrences as being habitual and therefore, in some way or other, things over which we have a measure of control. For the English listener, saying things usually happen implies that, like buses that come in threes, they just happen to us. Apply that logic to the song's theme of humdrum relationships and you realise that an English translation which failed to include this wouldn't stand a chance of conveying the feelings of a clearly overwrought Claude Francois. Paul Anker, let discretion and possibly the fear of reprisals from Frank Sinatra's social circle be the better part of valour. As we'll hear next time, some people aren't as shrewd as Paul and just do the job really badly. No wonder artists get tortured. Let's hear Claude being just that. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Stew. Jean interfered in the emotional landscape of everyone she met. Her, how are you, always so sincerely asked that you're fine, grand, dandy or okay, hung in the silence that followed it, awkward as the mad dart of your eyes to avoid her stare. You can feel the lids slowly peeling off the boxed up grief in your gut and so that she can't hear it go pop. You start prattling on about work and the commute and the madness of the other drivers. She waits so well. You know she's not really listening to the commuter rant, but waiting for the pop. She knew before she asked how you were. It's not hard to see the pain in your eyes, your lost smile, usually so close to the surface, now somewhere much further away. You know that yourself that your voice no longer rises and falls in the giving of love and enjoyment you're known for. You know yourself it's a hollow ring from an empty bucket. You've never felt loved by Jean. 
She's always been there, always asked, always listened, and for years you told her as much as she had time to hear. Everything. You were candid and fluent and funny and enjoyed the telling, even the telling of the heartbreaks and the mistakes, the mortifications and the deceits. Somehow over the years you stopped telling. To be fair, it wasn't just Jean you stopped telling. You stopped telling anybody anything, full stop. Some sense of who am I and what does it matter, creeping in to cover you head to toe in never mind. Some sense of passing time and a this too will pass postcard stuck on the fridge, leaning in to persuade you that talking didn't fix anything and time did indeed heal if you let it, if you let go of what was hurting you. You know that when you ask Jean how she's doing, she'll say she's fine, never better. But you ask anyway. You don't try to bring any light or love to the question. You know she'll hear it as an answer to her own. Won't take it as a chance to talk about herself. Will hear your grief and continue as if you'd said, I can't go on, Jean. The truth is I'm done. And she does. She says your name with such softness that you bend. Every part of you that can bend, bends, and you buckle in the air, halfway to the floor, holding a howl in the crook of your arm. You know that if you drop your bags, you'll follow them. You hold on tight. Scream the silent scream you know well and breathe. Every part of you that buckled tenses up and you spring upright in front of her. Dear God, Jean, you say, aren't you the fine can opener? All my life you've been poking around, asking me how I am and what I've been up to and what's the plan for the next big thing. Can't you see I'm fine? I'm busy like everyone else, keeping body and soul together and trying to keep my head above water, just like everyone else. I'm tired, of course I am, from time to time, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else, Jean. She hardly flinches. And you know yourself that she's heard you. She knows you're not okay. Not tired like everyone else, but more tired. Body and soul further apart. Head more underwater than above. Later, in the police station, you explain that you hadn't expected the knife to cut her. It was still in its sheath, inside the plastic bag you'd brought to the supermarket with you. But it was new, and it was sharp. Six inches deep, they said, her wound. She might not make it, they said. Stew, you said. I wanted the knife to make stew. A good sharp knife for the root veg now that I'm not as strong as I used to be.